26. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Sipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. This is God's word. You may be seated. Don't feel guilty if that text did not fill you with a lot of warm fuzzies. <laughs> Aren't you glad it's not Mother's Day? <laughs> uh, before we get into the text this morning, uh, just a reminder, uh, tonight we are going to have uh, an awesome opportunity, a special opportunity to, to recognize Herb and Joy Smith. We're going to meet over in the Fellowship Hall tonight at, uh, at 5 o'clock. And it's going to be an opportunity for us to say to both of them how much we have been blessed and marked and shaped and taken care of and prayed over and ministered to and taught by this couple over um, X, X number of decades. And uh, one of the things that I thought about doing this morning was uh, to have everyone who had had maybe their diapers changed by joy or had been taught by her or had sat at Herb's feet or listened to one of his sermons or had eaten at their home or had been visited in the hospital. And then it dawned on me that everybody in our church family would raise up and stand and recognize them as being blessed um, by Herb and Joy. And so what we're going to do instead, though, is we're going to ask Herb and Joy to stand. Where are you guys at? Can we get you to stand? Where are you at? There's Joy. And we're going to ask you to continue standing as, uh, as we sing to Joy and Herb. We love you with the love of the Lord, then. We love you with the love of the Lord. We love you with the love of the Lord. We see in you the glory of our King. And we love you with the love of the Lord. And all the church said, Amen. you may be... Well, you're already seated. <laughs> I'm talking to Herb and Joy. Tonight, 5 o'clock, you're going to have your chance to hug them and kiss them and, and say thank you. Uh, let's begin with a word of prayer as we get into this, uh, this, uh, this interesting text this morning. Father, it is with a great deal of humility that we approach you in the name of Jesus right now. Asking, as David has mentioned today, uh, uh, for clarity, to see clearly what it is that you would have us to see clearly today. And as we always pray in the name of your Son, as we go to your Word, we ask for eyes that will be able to see it and ears to be able to hear it in such a way, Father, that your Word resonates deeply inside of us. And it's not just something that becomes a part of the way that we think about our lives or um, how to conduct ourselves, but truly transforms us and revolutionizes the way that we live in this world. Father, we are grateful for every grace that comes our way, and we're thankful for this text. And in the name of Jesus, we pray all of this with gratitude in our heart. Amen. One of the most famous passages in the Old Testament that illustrates the, the otherness of God is found in Isaiah chapter 55. And here the prophet is being used by God to communicate a passage to the people of Israel. And God says through Isaiah, 
that my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Point blank range, God is other than us. There is a, a, a journal that I read from time to time. Uh, many of you, I know, read it as well. First Things, back in 1991, there was a quote from Charles Misner, who is a specialist in uh, relative uh, uh, or general relativity theories and, and sort of an expert on the life of Einstein. And he writes in this magazine, it's a quote, that I do see the design of the universe as essentially a religious question. That is, one should have some kind of respect and awe for the whole business. It's very magnificent and shouldn't be taken for granted. In fact, I believe that is why Einstein had so little use for organized religion, although he strikes me as a basically very religious man. He must have looked at what the preacher said about God and felt that they were blaspheming. He had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined and that they were not talking about the real thing. My guess is that he simply felt the religions he'd run across did not have the proper respect for the author of the universe. End of quote. Misner, I think, brings up something that all of us must come to terms with. When, when we as disciples of Jesus come to the Bible, which is the Word of God, or we come on the first day of the week as we have this morning to worship God who not only has created us and saved us, but is the author of everything that we know and experience, even when we come to our own lives, made in the image of God, or we begin to think thoughts about God, we ask the question, are we thinking and talking about and worshiping the real thing? Uh, many of you, like myself, love poetry. Love the poetry of Elizabeth Barrett Browning. She wrote a book back in 1857. It was a book, but it's really just this long extended poem. It was called Aurora Lee. And in book seven, very interesting line she writes. Earth's crammed with heaven. And every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit round it and pluck blackberries. Uh, the passage that we're looking at this morning that Phil just read for us is not going to allow us just to sit around and pluck blackberries. Uh, where we left Moses last week, Moses is still in the presence of God, and God has spoken to him from that burning bush. And he said, I've seen the oppression, the misery that Egypt has foisted upon Israel. I'm going to come down. I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to liberate Israel from Egypt, and I'm going to send you to do it. You are going to go back to Egypt. And Moses, when he hears those words, he shudders as a shiver of cold runs up and down his back just at the thought of going back to Egypt. He won't say no. He won't say no, at least not up front. What he does is more like what a little child does with a parent. He tries to wear God down with a bunch of questions. Who am I to do such a thing? And who are you if they ask? 
What if no one believes me? Or what if I'm not very good at being persuasive in the way that I talk and I can't convince anybody to do it? Finally, would it be possible, God, if you would send someone else? And it's at this point that God's anger burns against Moses. His anger burns against Moses. Now up to this point, you have God manifesting himself in this flame. It's the, 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 the human language of, of, of people trying to, to describe what it is that Moses saw. What he saw was a self-sustaining flame. It was frozen lightning in that bush. And when he goes, well, God, do you think you might send somebody else? That self-sustaining fire becomes a dangerous and a consuming, angry fire. There's this scene out of the first Lord of the Rings movie where Bilbo, it's his birthday, he's getting ready to leave the Shire. Gandalf shows up. They begin to talk about the ring and at one point Bilbo begins to get angry and to be disrespectful of Gandalf and to get belligerent with him. And you may remember the scene, Gandalf the Great, he stands up and shows his stature and his power and his strength. And he rebukes Bilbo for treating him as a wizard that could be trifled with. That's what's happened with Moses here. And he catches himself and he obeys. And from this point on, the story picks up a little speed as we go through seven scenes in 13 verses. The first is Moses goes home in verse 18. As you know, and as you've been taught in your classes over the last couple of weeks, uh, scholars have debated for centuries what happened at the Exodus. How many people left? Were there really ten plagues? Was there a fellow by the name of Moses? Is it a credible story? Ironically, one of the most difficult stories, stories to believe is the one that is never talked about. Moses goes back to his father-in-law Jethro and says, I'm going to take your daughter and your grandkids. I'm going to go to a foreign country. Chances are you're never going to see me again. And the father-in-law says, go, I wish you well. Never would probably happen, right? But then the second scene, verse 19. Yahweh speaks to Moses in Midian. Go back to Egypt because the, the men who are seeking your life are dead. When you think about it, what an encouraging thing that has to be for Moses. To have met God who is sending him back to a dangerous place, Egypt, in the middle of nowhere on the side of a a no-name mountain. And now here he is, far from that place, in Midian, getting ready to go to Egypt. And God shows up there. The God who said, I'm going to send you back and I'm going to go with you, is really with him in presence. Well, and then verse 20, Moses packs up his wife and his kids plural. There are two, Gershon and Eleazar. And it's in verse 20 that his staff becomes known as the staff of God. In the next next scene, Yahweh speaks again with Moses. And it's a conversation about firstborns. That Israel can be described as my firstborn child. And my firstborn is going to be liberated out of Egypt because of the death of the firstborn of all of those in in Egypt, and especially the firstborn son of Pharaoh. Then in verses 24, 25, and 26, Yahweh assaults Moses and tries to kill him on the way. And then in the next, the last scene, Yahweh speaks to Aaron, who is the older brother of Moses. We learned about him in Exodus chapter 1. He talks to Aaron about going and meeting Moses, which they do, verse 27. And then in the final scene, Moses and Aaron meet with the elders of Israel, tell them about the plan to to, to be liberated 
verses 29, 30, and 31. What we're going to do with the rest of the time we have this morning is, is to really think about that short little passage where God tries to kill Moses. It is, uh, I think, the most difficult passage in all of Exodus to understand. I, I mean, we recognize the difficulties. I mean, God goes to all of the trouble to show up on the side of a mountain called Horeb, the western side of, of Midian, to have the patience to talk with Moses, goes to all the trouble to send him back, and now he's seeking to kill him. What exactly does bridegroom of blood mean? Some of you are reading the King James. The King Jimmy says, bloody husband thou art. It's a hard saying. And when she says it, is she happy or is she angry? Is it a good thing or a bad thing that she says it? And probably some of the toughest, grammatically speaking, two of the more important pronouns do not have antecedents. And without them, we have to go elsewhere to figure out who is being referred to. For instance, number one, who exactly is God trying to kill? Is it Moses or one of Moses' sons? Or maybe number two, who is Zipporah speaking to after she circumcises her son? You get the idea of the difficulties. And so what we want to do as we get into this passage, we want to see two things that are clear. Number one, there is an assault. And number two, there is a rescue. So on the way to Egypt, there is this assault. Moses has settled his wife, saddled his wife and sons on a donkey. They set off for Egypt. The Hebrew tells us that where they get to is, is a lodging place at night. It's a night camp. And in the dark of that night, God shows up at that night camp, that lodging place, and he comes to put Moses to death. Why would he do that? The reason is there is a matter between God and Moses that has not been resolved. It has not. You'll remember back in Exodus chapter 2, the murder of an Egyptian. And it's the murder of that Egyptian that forces Moses to flee for his life. Moses is guilty of murder. He didn't cheat on his taxes and everybody kind of turn a blind eye to that. He wasn't mean to his wife Zipporah or maybe a little tough on Gershon and Eleazar. He killed a man. He killed a man. Taking another human life. And he is not going to be let off the hook easily. Now, if you have never thought about this, we think about it this morning. That God's eyes are everywhere on everyone all the time. God sees what we do publicly, and God sees who we are in private. We know that He sees the awful oppression of the massive amount of, of Israelites that are in Egypt. He sees the, the misery of an enslaved people, and God is going to bring a hard stop to that. A hard, hard stop to it. But he also sees the individual act of murder that was nearly hidden from everybody else. And even if it was, he still sees it. And will make sure that his holy justice is served. 
And now in that dark place, Yahweh, the creator of the heavens and earth, is calling Moses into account for the death of that Egyptian. He's guilty. Now we'll talk more about this in detail in the future, but one of the things that this tells us is that God cares for the people of Egypt too. God cares for the people of Egypt too. Egypt is an enemy of Israel. Egypt is the author of a lot of horrible things. But God cares for Egypt too. So how did God, how did God try to kill Moses? We're not told. We're, a couple of ideas are interesting. Robert Alter from, uh, from the West Coast. He's uh, probably the leading Hebrew scholar in the United States, at least in my generation right now. He says that possibly it's a silent stranger, like the one who met Jacob at the fords of, of, of um, uh, uh, Jacob in, uh, in Genesis chapter 32, at the, at the fords of Jabbok, and wrestled with him that night. I don't really go there. I, probably not. And, and my reason for rejecting that is I don't think that that's the, you know, if Zipporah saw somebody physically attacking Moses, I think her response would have been different, you know, if she had seen somebody physically attacking Moses. I mean, I think that if somebody came into the, my house at night and attacked me, you know, Ellen would try to jump on their back and, you know, try to get them off. I mean, you probably don't know this, but for the last 36 years, she's been my bodyguard. Interesting to me is Alec uh, Matir. He says that it could be a fatal illness. We don't know for sure, but possibly a fatal illness that somehow communicated some kind of guilt before God. I lean in this direction. It's already happened in the Bible. You'll remember in Genesis chapter 12, God has called uh, Abraham and Sarah out of Mesopotamia, Ur of the Chaldees, make their way up to Haran, then down into the Promised Land. They're not in the Promised Land very long when they decide because of a famine that they're going to go to Egypt. It's a foolish decision not to trust God who has brought them to the Promised Land. But they go, and somewhere along the way, Abraham discovers that, yes, it is an incredibly foolish decision because this woman, his wife, Sarah, sitting next to him as they're driving down to Egypt, is a beautiful, beautiful woman. And all of the Egyptians will see her, especially Pharaoh, want her for his wife, will, will kill Abraham in order to have her. And so Abraham goes, Sarah, why don't you just tell everybody you're my sister? Which she does. And what Abraham said was correct. And they, 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 they present him with all kinds of great things. They take her off into the palace and in verse 17 of Genesis 12, the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abraham's wife, Sarai. And Pharaoh summons Abraham and says, what in the world have you done to me? Happens again in Genesis chapter 20. Same storyline. This time it's Abimelech. And Abimelech realizes that having taken Abraham's wife, Sarah, into his household this is causing all of this dreadful illness and disease in his, in his family. And having given Sarah back to Abraham, Abraham in Genesis 20 verse 17, prays to God and God heals Abimelech, his wife and his female slaves so that they could have children again. For the Lord had kept all the women in Abimelech's household 
from conceiving because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. I think this is perhaps the way that it happened. Is that Moses has grown ill in such a way that Zipporah knows that God is angry with her husband. I think it also explains why Zipporah has the time to be able to do what she does to save Moses' life, which brings us now to the rescue. You know, when I read the beginning chapters of Exodus, I'm really amazed every time I think about the fact that the heroes at the beginning of Exodus are really heroines. You've got those midwives, Pua and Shipra, who stand up to Pharaoh, those Jewish midwives. You have the mother and the sister of Moses that are going to protect him against Pharaoh and his decree that all the boys should be killed and thrown into the, thrown into the Nile and killed. You have the daughter of Moses who brings a Jewish lad into her home and protects him. And now you have Zipporah. And she takes a flint knife. She performs circumcision on, I believe, her firstborn. There are two boys, Gershon and Eleazar. They are small because both she and they are saddled and put on this donkey. And only one is circumcised in this, this incident, Gershon, I believe, because he is the firstborn, which is the significant son in her culture. As she touches the feet of Moses with the blood and the foreskin, you know, feet can mean a lot of things in the Bible. But sometimes it means just feet. And she's associating what she has done with Moses. And God let Moses alone and Moses is given life and not death. And I believe that her cry is out of relief and joy. You are a bridegroom of blood to me, which means that she has brought her husband back to herself. Again, a lot of questions here. For example, how did Zipporah know that circumcising her son would bring healing to Moses' plight before God? Maybe we'll save that for another time. But what we do know is this. The situation between God and Pharaoh is going to be dealt with on the level and in the terms of firstborns and blood. That's Exodus chapter 4, verses 21, 22, and 23. The situation between God and Moses will be dealt with in terms of a firstborn and blood. In other words, the blood of a firstborn brings rescue to a human guilty of sin before God and deserving of death. In John chapter 5, Jesus is taking those Pharisees to task. He says, you look, you look at those scriptures and you study diligently those scriptures because you think in them you have life. And those are the scriptures that point to me. That you might recognize me, that you might know me, that you might come to me and find life. And I think that what we find at the end of Exodus chapter 4 is a story that points to an ultimate firstborn. Jesus was the firstborn, according to Matthew chapter 1, of Mary. In Colossians chapter 1, he is the firstborn over all creation, which means that he is the preeminent one over all things. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5, he is the firstborn from the dead, which means that he is the first one with many more to come. 
Jesus is the firstborn among the family of God and in whose image we are to bear in all of this life. It is His image. It is Christ that we look like. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. And then on the night that He was betrayed, Jesus takes a cup. And when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Peter, some years later, thinking back about that, thinking of Christ perhaps as that ultimate Moses leading his people in exodus out of enslavement to sin. He writes, you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from that empty way of life that was handed down to you by your ancestors. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And even that Hebrew writer, whoever he was, said, you know that Jesus also suffered. He suffered outside the city gate to make people holy through his blood. So many things to think about when we think about Exodus chapter 4. The way that we think about God has got to be serious business for God's church. God is not a God to be trifled with. He is a God who sees everything and because of his holy nature there is a holy justice even for Moses, the greatest of all the characters of the Old Testament. In Luke, when, he, when Jesus is, is, uh, is transfigured before those, those knucklehead apostles that Jesus had brought up on the mountain with him, it's Moses and Elijah that show up and talk to him about his own exodus, the leading of people out of their enslavement to sin. But we're also reminded in this passage that there is a way out through the blood of a firstborn from the guilt and the penalty of that guilt that each and every person who has ever lived is guilty of because of our own crime, our own rebellion against the holiness of that God and the goodness of His creation. It's through the blood of the firstborn that we find the thorns and the thistles of the curse being removed from us in terms of penalty. You know, God had the power to destroy Moses just like that. Just like that. But he doesn't. There is a period of time in which Zipporah is able to take that flint knife and she's able to do that circumcision and to bring the blood and the firstborn and the covenant and all, all these, these things to bear on the life of Moses. Moses had time. We all have time. We all have time. But it's not a time that we should be lackadaisical with or flippant with. All of us are guilty unless 
we are covered by the, the, the penalty offering of Jesus' blood, our trust in His sacrifice, that He lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died in order that we can get His righteousness and get His life. And if, and, and if you are that person that has been blessed in such a way, what does that do to change the way that you think about God? And even simple things like when we come together to worship God, how do we sing to the real thing and not blaspheme while we're doing it? Or when we think about other people or, or of God's movement in, in the world, are we thinking about the real thing and paying the due attention and energy and effort because of what the real thing really is? But there are those maybe this morning that have never taken the opportunity of the time that has been afforded to them to be able to come in under the blood of Christ in such a way that the guilt of the sin is removed and the forgiveness is extended and the Holy Spirit is gifted to you and the guilt that you have on your conscience is cleared and you can sleep at night and even though your life is not going to be easier because you become a disciple of Jesus, you know that He is with you wherever you go. And as His Word says, no condemnation to those that are in Christ. And if that describes you this morning, you have time right now, right now, to make the confession that Jesus is Lord and, and, and to confess not only that He is Lord, but, 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 to, but to repent, which is the theologian's way, the, the Bible way of saying, you're just turning your car around. You're going in another direction. You've been driving your car towards a wall or a cliff, and now you're turning it towards God and life everlasting. And you participate in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in, in, in baptism, sins being washed away, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and you begin to live not only in the community of the church, but as a child of God, son or daughter of God. And if that describes you this morning, you have time this morning to do that very thing. We'll have some shepherds down here at the front to talk to you about it. Come now as we stand and sing to God. More about Jesus would I know. More of His grace to others show. More of His saving fullness see. More of His love who died for more, more about Jesus, more, more about Jesus, more of His saving fullness see, more of His love who died for me. More about Jesus, let me learn, more of His holy will discern, Spirit of God, my teacher be, showing the things of Christ to me. More, more about Jesus, more, more about Jesus, more of His saving fullness seed, more of His love who died for me. You may be seated. A couple of prayer requests have come over the, the prayer text line. First from Kathy Cook and Sarah Hopkins. 
uh, and this is Kevin Cook, uh, a brother and, and son. Praise and thanksgiving, Kevin's hand surgery went much better than expected. He still has all of his fingers and thumb, and he can move them. Prayers, uh, prayer works, and God is the great physician. Pray for continued healing. We all want to say amen. We also have a, a prayer request from Maurice Trimble. Uh, he, is, uh, he has some upcoming uh, clinical trials that's coming up on Tuesday. Also suffering from, uh, from a toothache, asking for us to remember him in our prayers today. Catherine Ranslaven is asking us to pray for her to, uh, to feel better. Uh, seasonal allergies. We can all be praying for a lot of people along those lines. Natasha Mayberry for the Mayberry family and Keith's uncle. His uncle Mike passed away uh, yesterday morning after a short hospice stay. Please pray for peace and comfort during this time. Uh, Greg and Laura Dockin for Roland Harvey. Had a stroke this week. He's in ICU. Can't move his left arm and leg at this time. He can speak, but he has requested for us to pray for him. Debbie Whitaker would like for us to, to pray for her job situation, some of the pressures that, uh, that she's facing, prayers for God's guidance in showing me what His will is for me, and to open my eyes, ears, and heart to recognize the doors, the windows that He opens. That's kind of an amazing thing. Sometimes it's a window that you've got to go through, right? Give me the courage to follow Him. Braden Spear for Wayne Spear. My grandpa is having a heart checkup on, uh, 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 tomorrow on Monday. Pray that he is okay. And then uh, Peggy Krieger, my brother-in-law Fred Munster is in ICU at the Downtown Baptist Hospital. Also pray for me to have a good recovery from knee replacement surgery, which will be tomorrow. And then finally, uh, Robert and Jessica Lammers, where are you guys at? Can we have you stand? Uh, they are moving on. We think to Kansas, right there in the back. Uh, moving to PA school in Kansas uh, last Sunday with us, right? Not in Kansas. Doug led me astray. But you're going to PA school? Okay. Hey, Godspeed, and thank you for being part of our church family. We'll be praying for the move. <laughs> Remember, as you're leaving today to, uh, to go by and to see the senior tables and to, to recognize them. Remember, also, no small groups tonight. We're going to meet back here at 5 o'clock in the Fellowship Hall to love and to hug and to kiss, uh, especially Herb and, uh, and, and Joy, too. <laughs> and we're going to make him, make him uh, suffer for stepping down as a shepherd. So that's going to be tonight at 5 o'clock. want to invite everybody to be a part of that. No small groups. Be careful going home. Enjoy the rest of the day with your family. We'll see you back here at 5 o'clock. Let's stand and sing one last song together. Lord, take my life. Make it your home.